1: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. Should the Fed get credit for the fall in inflation? A new article says no. At best, they kept it from getting worse. We will debate that and talk about why rates may have to stay at these levels longer than the market currently thinks. Plus, two ways to play the trend of people being stuck in homes they bought with low mortgage rates. We'll talk to two CEOs with a front row seat on that trend. One beat, the other missed. We'll look at why and what that tells us about housing globally. Also, Disney, Affirm, and Instacart are on deck with their earnings reports. We'll preview those and highlight the one name out of the bunch that our trader really regrets selling. But first, let's get to today's markets, the latest numbers. Dom Chu. it's been a weaker picture this afternoon.
2: It has, and we've lost momentum kind of steadily throughout the course of the day and certainly around the midday mark. Uh, Right now, it's right across the board, but modestly so. The Dow Industrial is down about one-third of one percent. 34,050, down about 100 points. The S&P 500 currently sits at 4368. That's down about nine to ten points, one quarter of one percent. And to give you an idea of the trading range so far today, to kind of gauge where we are right now, we were up roughly 13 points at the highs and down 19 points at the lows. So we were positive, modestly at one point we've drifted lower. The Nasdaq composite, again, off one quarter of one percent, 38 points to the downside for the composite index, 13,600 the last trade there. One notable Feature of the market right now is the multi-multi-month low that we are seeing in oil prices. Right now, U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate crude, $75.13. That's down about 3%. Just over the course of the last two trading sessions is where we've dipped below that kind of longer-term trend line, the so-called 200-day moving average, the 200-day average price on a rolling basis. You can see here, the last time, by the way, we drifted below that level was back in around the mid-level of July, so this is the lowest level that we've seen since July for US benchmark crude prices. We'll see whether or not there is any kind of a floor for this going forward, but it's been a pretty decent downtrend over the course of the last couple of months. And then one stock to keep a close eye on, we talked about the closing high that we saw record-wise for Microsoft shares. Right now, they're still up about one half of 1%. We're still a stone's throw away from the intraday record that we saw going back to July. But still, on a positive day here overall for Microsoft, you can see that level is the one we're kind of watching right here. About $368 or so. So watch those particular shares. We are pushing higher towards those intraday records. But again, closing record yesterday for one of the most important, Kelly, stocks in the marketplace. I'll send things back over to you.
1: Indeed it is. Dom, thank you for now. We appreciate it, Dom, too. Well, stocks have generally been rallying since the Fed meeting last week on hopes they're done hiking rates, especially as inflation levels have come down sharply. But the Wall Street Journal says the Fed shouldn't get credit for that drop because the best we can say about the Fed is that it stopped things from getting even worse. So what should we make of the Fed's policy moves? And is the market correct in expecting that rate cuts come next? Let's ask David Zervos, chief market strategist at Jeffries and CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman. So glad you could both join. Steve, let me just start with this, uh, with the article, kind of set us up a little bit in terms of the debate that's out there on the street. I don't think there's any doubt, really, that the Fed's hikes certainly helped uh, break okay. the back of high inflation. It's just I think consumers want to see even more relief on the price level than what, we're, what we've seen.
0: Yeah, you hit that term exactly right. Consumers want the price level and the policymakers are going for the, the level of, of increase or the, the rate of increase of, of prices. So there's a bit of a difference in terms of the goals there. Look, I, I, I get where the journal is coming from on this article. Uh, and a lot of it makes sense in the sense that we have had stronger growth and inflation has come down despite that stronger growth. And in some areas, it hasn't been as much change as you would have thought. I think the context is really important here. The Fed went into this fight against inflation with at least one hand tied behind its back, and that's because two of the areas that it has the most impact in most times when it's hiking rates, autos and homes, were areas that were in extreme deficit relative to the supply that should be out there. We know we've been underbuilding homes for a long time. We know there's a huge demand for it, and on top of that, the uh, demand for housing Uh, The the unique demand for housing that came out of the pandemic, which is for those homes where you could have an office in there. The other thing is, is cars were were down and and there was a big problem in terms of getting the automobiles and in terms of supply. So while the Fed was trying to. Tamped down on these areas and the two areas it has to have the easiest impact. And there was incredible demand for both of these products on the other side. So to the extent that it has had an effect, it's done so with a tide running against it.
1: And Dave, you know, a lot of people have been looking for relief on that front uh, mm-hmm. for an end to rate hikes and maybe some moderation in mortgage rates and so forth. But you're warning people not to get carried away as they have uh, over the quarters with this idea that, that cuts are coming. Why not?
3: Well, honestly, Kelly, it's the same story we've been telling since the beginning of the year. People at the beginning of the year were forecasting rate cuts in September, uh, and clearly we're here in November still debating whether they're going to hike one more time. So I don't think the argument's changed much. It's It's been a, an argument that, you know, we framed as, as the Fed really not being as uh, restrictive as maybe the rates market would suggest because of the size of the balance sheet and a few other factors related to the strength of the consumer. But to be to go kind of kind of go back to to Steve's uh, analysis and the article that you referenced. I think it's a really interesting article and a really interesting time to debate what uh, what's in there because uh, I do believe the article has some some good points in that it probably wasn't so much the Fed that brought inflation down. We've had very strong growth. And one of the fastest disinflations in post-World War II history, I think the third fastest, only to be surpassed by the deflations or disinflations of 75 and 82, which were both pretty bad years economically. So it is a very interesting story, but I think it's rooted in the whole idea and the misconception that the inflation itself was the Fed's fault. So I think you have to take that article back. And if you're not going to lay blame for or credit for the Fed on getting the inflation down because of supply-side stories and supply-side uh, logistical issues that were related to the reopening, I think you also put the same supply shock in play for the inflation that we got between Q- Q2 Q of 2021 into the summer of 2022, which the article is not doing, and most of the critics were not doing. And, and I'll, I'll, I know you want to get back into a couple other things, Kelly, but I, I want to go back and put criticism where I think criticism really is due. And that's with all the folks in the summer of 2022 who were criticizing the Fed for being too late and generating all of that inflation when it really was a supply shock story. The Fed staying on top of it and keeping inflation expectations anchored, as Olivier Blanchard said in the article when he was quoted. But most importantly, the big miss was all of these folks at that Brookings conference, I think it was a Larry Ball paper and Jason Furman commenting on it, that talked about how the unemployment rate was gonna to have to go to six and a half percent for two years just to get inflation back to two or three percent. Yeah. That's clearly been the biggest miss of this entire thing and that's where the criticism should be is that we didn't have to crush demand to get inflation down because this was a supply shock to begin with
1: let me come back to that in a second meanwhile we've seen markets moving because we just had this 10-year note auction want to bring in rick santelli to hit those results rick walk us through this what what just happened what's the grade you'd give this
4: today well, the grade was Charlie minus, C minus, a bit below average. Let's go through it, shall we? 40 billion 10 year notes, that's versus 35 billion on our last package. And the yield, 4.519. The yield was a bit higher than the one issued market. Higher yield even go lower price. If you are selling, you want a higher price. Right there, you get marked down a bit. Uh, what was really notable is the direct bidders were extremely light. At 15.2%. That equals a February 23rd date right on the nose. But to find a lower number, you have to go back to February of 22. So that that really makes that category of direct bidders, which is so important, weak. And 15.1% go to primary dealers. That's the most they had to take since April. Now, why isn't the market more responsive here? I'm a little surprised it stopped exactly at 4.5%. But maybe technicians aren't as surprised. Let's go to the charts very quickly. Here's a 10 year note yield chart. These are arcs. So, uh, you know, you need a compass to find out where you're going. Sometimes you need a compass to find out where the market's going. A protractor will work as well. These are roughly. 89 day cycles. What's 89 days? Well, add up 55 and 34. Those are two Fibonacci numbers, so 89 is a Fibonacci number. Now, granted, there are a few days off here and there. We're talking trading days, not actual days for you GAN uh, technicians out there. So exact cycles, picking up all the key points. So here we are. And we all know on the 23rd, we had the outside day. We did the same thing. So that's one reason. Here's two reasons. I'll give you a third reason why we've been going down in yield but may stop. And that is we have a head and shoulders formation. The neckline comes right in at 4.5%. So this is a huge area. The weekly close, above or below it, will dictate whether we go back down here or we retest 5%. So,
1: Rick, this is a little bit of a head-scratcher because we see yields dropping, uh, and yet there wasn't as strong demand as expected. Those two things don't usually go hand-in-hand.
4: Well, uh, what we're seeing yields dropping is, is that the auction, if you take a step back, yes, it wasn't a great auction, but many traders are looking at all the big stories that are out there that I'm sure you've seen that... We are seeing a huge amount of buying, especially in the futures markets at these levels. And I think that the mogul of the auction was sort of small. The amount of longs that want to come in the market that think the highs are in is a very large number. So be careful. I'm not saying yields can't go down. What I'm saying is you may have a lot of company. This four and a half percent is quite important.
1: And let me quickly get a comment. Thank you, Rick, from Steve and, and David before we go. And Steve, I guess my thought for you would be we could almost go below four and a half percent on the ten-year today as we clear this hurdle. What would how would the Fed take that? Do you think?
0: I just want to. I'll get to that in a second. I just I disagree with Rick on the, on the grade on this uh, auction, and, and I always defer to him on this. But I got to say. This was the story of the day. I couldn't wait till Rick came on to tell us how the government did at selling $40 billion of tens. And there's a big question as to whether or not the market has an appetite for it. Yields came down and the market took down the auction at that lower yield. So when I see this number here at 451, I think it's auction. Everybody gets the same yield.
1: (laughs) Wait, Rick's mic is still on. Steve, finish your thought and then I'll give him a chance to respond.
0: No, my point is that if they're selling it at that yield and people are buying it, I get the issue of the directs not uh, taking, having to take too much of it. But my point is that it was a big risk, and the risk seems to, at least for the moment, we seem to have passed it by. That's why I give it a somewhat better grade, and I'm a little bit relieved that this was not a bigger issue, that the market didn't balk at these lower-yield levels. I, maybe i give Rick a chance to respond and tell me why I'm and, wrong. And
1: I'll add, Rick, the, the broader market, stock market, you know, off the low seems to be taking this better than maybe uh, the bond investors directly. But, but yields are still lower. Go ahead, Rick.
4: Okay, listen, I, the stock market's looking at yields. Yields are moving lower. And, Steve, I don't really disagree with much what you're saying. The one thing I would like to point out is that in the old days, you could have a bullet bid. You could have Solomon Brothers or Goldman come in right right at the deadline of an auction and put bids in. These are Dutch auctions, okay? So they have to go back until they move all the paper. So it really isn't equating. Investors aren't really sure where the yield is, so it's not going to necessarily affect their behavior. That's the beauty of a Dutch auction. And I'm not arguing it wasn't a horrible auction. C minus isn't bad. But direct bidders being light, dealers taking too much, and basically have an average for uh, 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 the bid to uh, uh, the bid to yield. All of those aspects, to me, look like a sort of average auction. The big thing, one other thing I want to point out, Kelly, is I always only look at the closes. The intraday moves never hardly end up on any of my charts. Hmm. These are all closing prices. The dailies are important. The weeklies are more important. The monthlies are more important. The quarterlies are the most important. Most technicians have all four of those charts.
1: All right, Rick, thank you so much. We all wanted that context today. Dave, I was just going to actually bring you in on a little bit different note that could maybe give some larger context here. Could it be that people agree with your suspicion or anticipation that the Fed could at some point return uh, or back to the market in some way and that that's also what's helping yields perform better here?
3: What do you mean return back to the market, Kelly, in terms of in terms of what?
1: I don't want to put words into your mouth, but if they start to use the balance sheet as a way of loosening as instead of rate cuts.
3: I, look, I, I think the balance sheet has two ways it can be used. One is QEQT and one is what they did during SVB, which is backstop the market in case there's a, an event in a specific sector. Let's say commercial real estate goes bad or something goes bad and they decide to create a funding facility to deal with that like they did with regional banks. Uh, I think you have to kind of keep those in separate compartments and realize that they're very willing to use the balance sheet to deal with financial instability. It's been very successful this year. It was successful for the ECB and successful for the Bank of England over the course of 2022 with the Italian government bond market and the gilt market. And I think they would be more than happy to let the balance sheet do some work for them if there's a a problem in a very specific sector that isn't affecting the overall macro. I don't think they're going to abandon QT anytime soon. In fact, I think that's a very unlikely thing. So the balance sheet is there for emergencies. The balance sheet is there for hiccups that we aren't really uh, necessarily taking into account. And I think it acts as a bit of a new Fed put, something we've been writing about uh, with our clients, to our clients recently. Slightly different Fed put than the one with rates and probably takes the rate put, that we're used to, which is why people buy tenure notes and why people buy uh, security to lock in those longer rates because they think rates might go down a lot in the future because things get messy. Uh, It takes a little bit away from that. So I'm not in the camp that there's a big duration trade to do here. I think the market's in a little better balance than it was at 5%, but I'm not not chasing duration at this level.
0: All right. And Steve, I'll just give you a quick last word. I agree completely with what David's saying. I think that the next move of the Fed is going to be cuts. There's a big question about when that happens. Uh, the market seems to be using May, June, and July as their expression of hawkishness and dovishness. May, they get more dovish. That's when the cut gets priced in. July, they get, le- they get uh, uh, a little more uh, hawkish, thinking that's the first cut. There will be cuts next year. I think that's fair to say. The cuts, I believe, will happen in a context of the Fed pivoting around more or less the same real rate. So I don't think the Fed will mean to loosen or loosen very much. I think the Fed will mean to stay consistent. And if inflation does indeed drop, the Fed funds rate will drop along with that to maintain a consistent uh, differential between inflation inflation. And the, and the Fed funds rate. So don't get too excited about it when the Fed does eventually cut rates.
1: All right. And I just want to mention the market reaction where we're kind of back to the the look that we had before the 10-year auction, as I think people are trying to figure this one out. It's a bit of a head-scratcher. Thank you both for now. We appreciate it. Steve Leesman and David Zervos uh, talking to us as we go through the economy. Coming up, we have two C-suite views on the housing market. First, how the home repair and maintenance space is holding up with a CEO of Front Door, and then we'll talk actual doors with the CEO of Masonite. But first, let's take a step back, check in on the gig economy. What is that telling us about the labor market right now? We'll talk to the CEO of Upwork a pulse check on their results uh, fresh off of that report. And as we head to break, let's get a quick look at markets as well. As I mentioned, the Dow heading back towards session lows after initially rallying somewhat on that 10-year auction. We're down 111 points, a third of a percent, and the Dow is the worst of the major averages. s and only down seven, Nasdaq down 22. Watch that 10-year note now back up to around 452. Just a hair under that. We're back after this.
6: Welcome back
1: to The Exchange. Shares of the freelance uh, marketplace Upwork soaring as much as 20% last night after strong Q3 results. They're up about 10% right now. The company beat on both the top and bottom line, recorded an 11% jump in revenue from the prior year, and raised full-year guidance, saying it's on track to deliver a record 2023. For more, let's bring in Upwork president and CEO Hayden Brown. Hayden, it's good to see you again. Welcome. Thanks, Kelly, great to be here. We talked last quarter about how a lot of people were looking for more freelance help with AI, for instance. Is that still a key factor here?
7: It's a huge theme right now, Kelly. I think businesses of all sizes are really trying to figure out how they can adopt these new technologies into their workflows, into their business products and offerings. And we're seeing tremendous growth in this area. You know, it's off of a small base, but certainly it's the fastest growing category of work we see on our platform. Generative AI and AI machine learning is up 63% year over year for us. We're seeing search activity in this area up 20x from Q4 of 2022 when ChatGPT really broke onto the scene. So there's a
1: lot of activity happening in this area. What else is driving the growth that you posted?
7: Well, we're seeing strength across all of the categories we serve. You know, our marketplace is incredibly diverse with 120 plus categories of work and serving small through large businesses. This past quarter, we saw our net new logos expand on the enterprise side, 21% quarter over quarter. So our sales team is certainly executing well, despite The macro backdrop, which continues to be challenging, you know, broadly for businesses, I think, at this time. Um, And then we're seeing, again, a lot of product innovation. So we launched partnerships with OpenAI in Q2, with Amazon, uh, ClickUp, Miro, a number of other companies this quarter, and our own uh, GPT-4 powered Upwork Chat Pro service, which just came to market this quarter, where we're really seeing, again, a lot of innovation happening and customers are leaning in, hiring freelancers to really do the work that they need in this macro environment. You know, they still have a lot of things they need to get done, and they're looking to Upwork solutions to get that work done.
1: Do you think part, some of this is driven by people who want to stay remote and have that flexibility uh, versus, you know, because we're seeing so many people called back to the office now, and I'm surprised, actually you say freelancing is hitting an all-time high, up three points from 2021 to 39 percent in terms of the share of professionals uh, doing this, 60 million Americans. I mean, these numbers are much larger than I would expect. I also would have thought they'd kind of be going back towards something more, quote-unquote, normal.
7: The world has changed, Kelly. You know, I think through the pandemic, through the last uh, decades of, you know, recessions, things like that, people have seen that uh, the the full-time stable job isn't what it used to be. And when we talk to professionals, they're increasingly realizing that working in freelance gives them not just the flexibility around where to work, but also the independence of knowing that they can always find uh, that living and earn that income regardless of the economic conditions because they have a portfolio of clients they're working with that they're not dependent on a single employer who might lay them off at any time. So the calculus for workers has really changed. The appetite for workers to have a freelance career that gives them economic stability in addition to other benefits around flexibility and independence is really what's going on on their side. And then businesses have woken up to the fact that if they want to tap into the best and most highly skilled workers out there, they need to be having a strategy around freelance workers because freelancers are the ones who are fastest to upskill and self-skill. And at this time, with the generative AI
1: revolution happening, they need these workers who are the ones that really have those skills for them. And remind me, I know that, you know, whether or not Upwork was around during the financial crisis here, that was a long time ago in company or kind of like dog years in company years. But uh, what should we expect to see if the labor market broadly is weakening? You know, what would you be on the lookout for? What what might your results show in terms of the mix of what employers or employees are looking for and their activity? Um, If there's anything you can tell us about kind of what you think is going on with the broader labor market and its strength right now, I'd be very curious.
7: Well, we've been doing a lot of work to untether our own results from the broader macroeconomic trends. And I think that was part of the, the strength in our results this quarter. And certainly, that's a theme we're working on going forward. But as the economy continues to you know, do what it what's going to do, and certainly, we're not the ones to predict that, um, what we are seeing is businesses still need to get work done. They need to do so cost effectively. They need to do so with skilled workers who often aren't in their region, aren't in their backyard, and that is why they increasingly are turning to freelance workers such as those in our platform to do that work. So I think that is something that has been an emerging theme not just in the last few years, but over the last two decades that we have been in this business. And we have seen that through ups and downs in the economy, um, there has been this enduring trend with the rise of freelance happening despite you know what the economy
1: is doing. That has been, been yeah. very intact. And continuing post-pandemic, which is remarkable. Hayden, thanks for joining us. Good to see you. We appreciate it. Thanks so much, Kelly. Hayden Brown, CEO of Upwork. Coming up, Amazon is on the way to becoming a bigger player in the healthcare space, giving Prime members another perk they can sign up for. Those details coming up
3: in Tech Check. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work.
1: Welcome back to the exchange. It's been a volatile market afternoon, although I shouldn't say too volatile. The VIX is pretty tame today. But Dow was up 100. The low was down 156. We came back somewhat after that 10 year auction, and now uh, actually we're now uh, pairing those declines again, down about 89 points. Eli Lilly shares popping last hour after the FDA approved its drug, Terzepatide, uh, which you would know under the brand name Manjaro for diabetes, but the FDA has now approved it officially. For weight loss, Uh, that's sending shares up about 1.5%, a little off-session highs. It will be marketed by Eli Lilly under the name ZepBound. Speaking of new names, check out shares of Kelanova, the company formerly known as Kellogg, also higher after an earnings beat on the top and bottom line. Remember, this is the snacks business, showing resilience despite concerns that weight-loss drugs like ZepBound will curb demand. In fact, we have Kelanova looking to snap a four-month losing streak. Let's get to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Tyler?
8: Thank you, Kelanova. All right, President Biden and Chinese President Xi planning to restart military-to-military communications. That's according to Axios. China suspended military communication channels last year. After the then House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, remember, she went and visited Taiwan. That's a no-no in Beijing. The Biden administration looking to create more stability in the region and lower the risk of a military standoff between the two countries. A Los Angeles man exchanged gunfire with two people who attempted to rob him. Surveillance video shows the homeowner walking to the front door as two masked robbers approach him. One robber pulled a gun on the man and the homeowner responded by pulling out his own concealed handgun. The Parties fired at each other, though no injuries were reported. Police say no arrests have yet been made and items from the Titanic are being sold at auction this week. A rare menu from April 11, 1912 shows what the first class restaurant was serving on board just three days before the ship sunk. A pocket watch from a Russian immigrant who died in the accident also being sold at a U.K. auction. The auction house said the watch is expected to sell for more than $60,000 while the menu could go for $74,000. Kelly? back to you. Couldn't quite make out that text, but I love no, seeing. I wouldn't know menus. what to order there. Yeah, it's always so interesting to see what
1: what's held up over time and what hasn't. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Tyler, Me I'll see bit. you on Power Lunch, by the way. Coming up, a Four Horsemen edition of Earnings Exchange, Disney, Affirm, Instacart, and Arm all on deck with results. We'll get you the numbers and narratives to know ahead of those reports. All four stocks down into that, by the way. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to The Exchange. Two under-the-radar housing plays out with earnings recently. Home maintenance and repair company Front Door beat on the top and bottom lines last week, while actual Front Door maker Masonite reported a miss today. We've got both CEOs joining us in first on interviews. Howard Heckies from Masonite and Front Door's Bill Cobb. Gentlemen, welcome to both of you. Appreciate your time today. Bill, let's start with you. Those shares up 22% since earnings last week. You raised full-year guidance. You're talking about profit margin improvements. What's driving that?
9: Well, we've had a very good year. We, our revenue is uh, was up in the third quarter, eight percent. Our our EBITDA, adjusted EBITDA was up over fifty percent. We've really done a nice job of controlling our costs, maintaining a solid top line, and uh, really doing some things within the company to uh, control our costs, which is which is really a big part of our our uh, whole cost area because of you know contractor costs we have to control. But the team's done a great job with it.
1: Just give us a little bit, I want to ask you about the housing market more broadly, but I am curious how you're uh, keeping such a tight lid on expenses right now. What are, what are the methods of doing so?
9: Yeah, I, we have a contractor relations team that has worked very closely with our contractors. We have 16,000 contractors across the U.S. that we maintain very close relationships with. I think we've done a nice job of satisfying our consumer demand with those contractors. We've had an increase in the amount of preferred contractors where we get uh, better pricing from them. So we've been able to do that, uh, and really control our overall sg expenses. Also,
1: how do so how do consumers find you? I mean, there's so many different. There's Angie. There's uh, TaskRabbit. There's so many different ways to find. You could call it a handyman or, or kind of help with home maintenance. No. What what differentiates you?
9: Well, we 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 get consumers in three different ways. One is through the real estate market. We can talk about that. That's been challenged, obviously. Mm-hmm. Two is direct to consumer. Come to our website and uh, sign up, call our 800 number. And then our biggest uh, source of consumers is actually our what we call renewals, is the customers we, con- we currently have. We have a 76% renewal rate, which has been going up, which we're very pleased about, which also indicates to us that we're doing a nice job of satisfying consumers uh, with the increase in, in renewals.
1: But a lot of these relationships kick off at the home buying uh, process. Is that right? Yeah. And so, talk to us yeah, a little bit about the home that. buying
9: or the direct to consumer. Sure,
1: sure. No, no. I was just going to say, as you mentioned, I'd love to know at a time when the market is almost frozen, uh, that must be quite a headwind.
9: It is quite a headwind. I mean, you know, the numbers on home sales—it looks like they're falling, could fall under four million homes relative to six million a few years ago. Uh, so it has been—it has been tough for us. We've maintained our share of new consumers uh, during that time frame, but it, but it is a headwind. There's no doubt.
1: So what do you plan for the next couple of years then? And again, the fact that you still manage to beat shows uh, there's different levers you can pull through these kinds of environments.
9: Yeah, we've got two approaches. One is our largest brand is American Home Shield, uh, which is in the home warranty space, which is a 12-month contract. It covers uh, repair and maintenance for, um, you know, the 23 home systems that uh, you have and appliances. And then our other effort is uh, called Front Door. It's actually got the company name, it's an app it's uh, what we call telehealth for the home uh you're able to video chat with us talk to one of our experts uh, which are in appliances HVAC plumbing electrical or even handyman to try to diagnose your problem before you even have to get a repairman to come out and we we find on average we can fix about 25 percent of the time uh, right over the right over the video chat and if not, We'll send you one of our 16,000 contractors to do the repair.
1: Quick final question. Is your customer feeling the pain just in general of tighter finances? Are they pulling back at all? Or on the flip side, do they still have the opportunity to spend on the homes that they're now more or less stuck in?
9: Yeah, I think this is one of the things that we're in. We're in a transition, Rob, because, you know, home, home sales have been so strong. Now people are staying in their homes. Systems, you know, are declining every day, every week. So we're finding that more and more people realize that if they're going to stay in their home, they're going to need the protection that a warranty or our on-demand offering brings. So we're, we're very bullish about our go-forward prospects.
1: All right. Bill Cobb, thanks for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly, CEO of Front Door. So let's get to the actual door maker, Masonite. Now their shares are down about six percent after that Q3 miss. Company reported net sales fell four percent year on year thanks to weakening demand. CEO Howard Heckes is back with us. Howard, it's great to see you again. And I mean, this is a a heavily geared business towards what would you say, home construction, or or what is the majority of it? Is it is it fix up? What where does where do most of the sales come from?
10: Sure. Thanks, thanks, Kelly. Thanks for uh, inviting me to be on. Our sales are about split between new construction and residential repair model, both of which, of course, are under pressure. And I think the market is adjusting to the higher rates that we're seeing.
1: That, you know, is no doubt the case. And obviously, the doors that you guys make, they're, they're beautiful. They're, these are big ticket items. So uh, is your expectation that we're going to be going through a couple of years of a soft patch or will, will different kinds of uh, sales drivers kick in?
10: Right. Uh, We are very bullish on long-term macros, both for new construction and for residential repair model. Consider that, obviously, housing is underbuilt, which bodes well for new construction. And the aging housing stock of existing homes gone from 29 years in 1991 to 42 years. So houses are getting older, which means uh, repair and remodel, we think, is also going to be very strong. So we're bullish on the long-term macros. We knew coming into 2023, that we were in a cyclical market and it was likely to be a down cycle. We developed a playbook. We're executing that playbook. And I'm really proud of the team for delivering what I think are solid results in Q3, despite the challenging macro environment.
1: Sure. And are you going to continue to move up market? I see this acquisition of Fleetwood. uh, They say a leading manufacturer of high-end glass doors for luxury homes. Absolutely all the showpiece homes that we see these days, it's all glass. Um, Is that one way that you're looking to kind of insulate yourselves? No pun intended. certainly
10: is. Right, it certainly is a, a close adjacency to our doors and falls perfectly within our doors that do more strategy, Kelly. So Fleetwood makes an absolutely beautiful door, the indoor outdoor living trend is, is uh, obviously growing as people want to integrate the indoor and outdoor. And so we see this as a premium product that absolutely can help support our growth and our aggressive objectives for uh, our long-term plan.
1: And I have to imagine you're looking to kind of you know achieve that higher selling price, maybe increase profit margins. It must be tough to do though, because are you facing any disinflationary or even deflationary pressures in your core business as that trend shifts from a pandemic rush to a post-pandemic uh, uh, you know quietness?
10: Yeah, it's interesting. We're not seeing as much deflation as we had thought. We, we sort of expected low to mid single digit deflation in the year. We're now thinking it's closer to low single digit deflation. But the core part of our strategy is to really decommoditize this category. Doors have been thought about more like a commodity for many years. And as we think about the value that they can add, and we talk to consumers consistently who appreciate the value that doors can add, whether it's privacy or light or security or connectivity or style. And so as we lean into those features that can uh, add value to homeowners, we think we can decommoditize the category.
1: Real quickly, UK market trends look pretty bad. And is that because they have adjustable rate mortgages and, and they're mu- more feeling the pinch than, than Americans?
10: They, 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 they certainly are, Kelly. That market is not great today. However, again, we expected that in our business. And so we're planning for it. We're doing the right things relative to our cost structure. And that market, too, looks a lot like the U.S. market long term. And so we're very optimistic about the long term prospects in the U.K.
1: All right, Howard, thanks for joining us today. Appreciate it.
10: My pleasure. Thanks. Howard
1: Heckys is the CEO of Masonite. Steel to come. Amazon Prime, Mary Care. Shares of the tech giant are up about 15% since they bought One Medical, and they're ramping up their push into the health space. We'll hear from the head of Amazon Prime about that next. Dow's down 68. Welcome back. Amazon Prime is looking to be members' one-stop shop, not just for shopping but also streaming. And even for screenings, they're offering discounted subscriptions to the primary care provider, One Medical, as they ramp up their moves in health care. Let's bring in Deirdre Bosa with all the details in today's Tech Check. Deirdre?
6: I like that, Kelly. Streaming and screening. So this is a bet from Amazon, not just on healthcare, but on brick and mortar as well. Now, Amazon acquired One Medical last year for $3.9 billion, and now it's offering it to its prime members at a discount, $99 a year. That's a discount of $100. Now, it is a network, One Medical, if you're not familiar with it, a network of boutique primary care practices here in the United States, mostly around major cities. Users can either access their primary care doctors through the app or through in-person appointments at brick and mortar locations. I spoke exclusively with Amazon's VP of Prime, Jamil Ghani, and I asked him how it fits into this broader Prime ecosystem.
11: There are, you know, many Americans struggling with, uh, how to get access to healthcare on a reliable basis. Just some facts. 40% of, uh, Americans don't have a primary care physician. On average, you wait 26 days to see your primary care physician. With one medical, you can have same day or next day appointments. And so I think this is just us in prime trying to remove some, some of the friction of daily life add some savings, as I mentioned before, and ultimately uh, have in one simple membership something that provides shopping, savings, streaming, and now uh, positive health outcomes.
6: So as Ghani says, the primary care space is ripe for disruption, but I asked him, why would primary care doctors choose an Amazon over a player that's more entrenched, has more history in this area, like United Health or even a CVS? It's incredibly competitive, especially the competition to sign on primary care doctors. Here's what he said.
11: I think ultimately the proposition for uh, doctors and registered nurses uh, to work with One Medical and to work with Amazon is they believe in the vision. And the vision is to make healthcare, which has been for too long an opaque, uh, but really necessary part of daily life, uh, make it much more transparent, make it much more uh, simple for everyone to access.
6: Yeah, so it's all about ease of access, which is really what a lot of the Prime offerings are about, from streaming to groceries um, to one or two-day shipping. Healthcare, though, this is going to be tricky because it is a highly regulated space where Amazon has... A mixed track record. Back over to you.
1: All right, Deirdre, thank you very much. We'll keep our eyes on their further ambitions. Deirdre Bosa reporting.
12: We have a news alert on David Einhorn's Greenlight Capital. Let's get over to Leslie Picker. Leslie, hi Kelly. Yeah, I was able to obtain Greenlight's latest investor letter. In it, David Einhorn writing, "quote We have limited exposure to the U.S. consumer, and that's a position based on the geopolitical risk that he thinks investors have been conditioned to ignore." He said the firm's working thesis is that the leaders of countries that seek to displace the U.S the dominant global power would prefer a different U.S. president. Einhorn says higher oil prices would squeeze the consumer and likely cause a recession. And he says the resulting inflation would also put the Federal Reserve in an uncomfortable position of having to fight rising prices at a time of rising unemployment. He says the firm is effectively on a, quote, buyer's strike again and didn't establish any material long positions during the quarter. The firm reduced its gross exposure in order to deploy capital into New ideas. He said the current extreme levels of geopolitical tension will lead to lower stock prices over a time frame that lasts more than a couple of hours. At that point, he says they intend to be positioned to buy beaten down stocks and some truly distressed debt should the opportunity present itself. The firm returned 12.9 percent in the third quarter net of fees, besting the S&P 500 by more than 16 percentage points. The firm returned 27.7% in the first nine months, beating the index by nearly 15 percentage points. So clearly the strategy that they have now in place is working. I
1: remember when he came on halftime uh, several months back, Leslie, and effectively said, like, he thinks this is now an environment where his strategies will do well. And here we are uh, with some pretty nice results so far. Thank yeah. you for bringing that to us, mm-hmm. Leslie Picker. Coming up, Disney has posted a top line beat in only 12 of the past 20 quarters. Near term options in a firm apply a 16% move either way tonight. And with no sales on the street, we'll get the first quarterly results from Instacart. The action, the story, and the trade on all three. Actually, we're going to include a fourth name in earnings exchange as well. Well, it's coming up next. Welcome back. Some big bellwethers reporting after the bell for the media, the consumer, and the IPO market. We're going to look at Disney, Affirm, and Instacart in today's earnings exchange. Here with our trades is Lee Munson, Portfolio Wealth Advisors founder. Lee, it's good to see you again. Let's kick things off with the biggie, the, the Dow component, Disney. Moffat Nathanson calling it deja vu this quarter as investors focus yet again on streaming versus linear, the fate of assets like ESPN, the impact of the actor's strike, and potentially more activism from Tryon. All the uncertainty has to stop down slightly on the year, but last week was its second best since January, up 8%. Are you a buyer here, Mr. Munson?
13: No, it's been my biggest disaster in my book of any individual stocks I've had since the lockdowns. My core thesis wasn't any of those problems you mentioned. They're all real. My biggest thesis was that parks were always going to remain strong. They always had pricing power. They could always raise their, their ticket prices to help Fuel all this other stuff with streaming. That's no longer the case. I think we have a cultural shift where kids have YouTube, TikTok, and a million other things. Do not be fooled by Disney ad- adults. I don't care how much Hulu costs. I don't care how many when streaming is going to be profitable. I'm just done with the stock. They need the best CFO in Fortune 500 company to help run a company that should run its own. Don't. It's wh- just I'm done.
1: What about when people say you know the the whole idea of buying when there's blood in the street or when it's hated? I mean, is self-loathing a good criteria for for buying?
13: Yeah, probably. You know, I mean, I think you know, could it pop? Could they beat earnings? Sure. I'm thinking about structurally going forward. I don't think that content is going to pick up the younger generation. So on a secular basis going forward, I don't think I think they're going to have a lot of great success, but no profits in streaming. And I also think that the idea. That this brand has this huge moat around it, and the kids are going to glom on to Star Wars and all the Disney princes, all this stuff. I think that is fundamentally flawed. That was my thesis, and I'm telling you, my thesis is fundamentally thawed, flawed. Right. It doesn't mean you can't make money in the next six months. I'm saying if you want to hold this for three, four, five years, you got to believe the brand is there. I don't think the mouse is with the kids anymore.
1: Well, Julia Borston has a, an exclusive sit down with Bob Iger at Disney headquarters coming up in the 4 p.m. hour today. We're very much looking forward uh, to how he going to defend the company's strategy here. Let's quickly talk about a firm buy now, pay later. They could benefit from some consumer weakness, but Compass Point writes, high rates should pressure volumes, loan sales, and rising delinquencies remain a risk. Shares have doubled over the past year, still well off the highs. You'd be a buyer?
2: I'm
13: really interested. Now, I want to be careful. I'm a value-oriented guy. So companies that lose this much money, it, I, I wanna say buy, but I'm hesitant. You need to do your own research. Here's the thing. A lot of analysts are just so poo-poo on Affirm. They say, oh, it's a commoditized market. Affirm is not a commodity. They have a unique business model. Amazon picked them for B2B for a reason. I, people don't like math, and Affirm, you at least know what you're into when you're doing these payments. They have flexibility that the, the Visa Mastercard doesn't. So I think people are analyzing the stock all wrong. The issue though, We've got to hear from management about operating earnings. We have to see when they're going to turn a profit. But I think fundamentally, people read the stock wrong.
1: All right. Let's move then on to Instacart. Legally, Maple Bear still. Maybe they can change that. uh, Reporting their first ever earnings after that September IPO. Uh, Analysts are concerned about market share as Uber and DoorDash and the grocers themselves are all jockeying for e-commerce. Price sensitive consumers may opt out of delivery. Ad revenues remain a key factor. Shares down 9% from that $42 opening price and they're below the $30 initial pricing. Would you pick these up?
13: I actually like this. Now I know people think that I've lost my mind. I don't like Disney at a great value, and I like Instacart. It's one of those old .com last mile delivery things. Why are we so concerned that they're only making a profit because of ad sales? I think that's great. You gotta figure out some way to make the delivery thing work. Also, Instacart is not DoorDash. Why do analysts keep comparing the two? Instacart is about your local grocery store, and that's where they excel. That's what their niche is. And if you do this, if you actually use the products and stop looking at stock screeners on your Bloomberg terminal, you're going to notice that there's a big difference between that and and say a DoorDash. So I like Instacart. I like that they make a profit. I like that they figured out how to make money on something that ever since my dot-com days, nobody's been able to figure it out. It's quite simple. Yeah, Sell ads. Yep. People love it. <laughs>
1: Real quickly, we have to go, Lee, but what about Arm? They also are going to have their first ever report. Uh, would you be
13: a buyer there? I like Arm. You know Why? Stop focusing on the saturation in phone sales. What we want to focus on is are they going to eat Cadence and Synopsys lunch in automotive? And remember, there's a huge growth potential at ARM for servers and the server chipset. We're using something called x86s. You know, that's sort of the standard, but they use too much power. ARM's all about power plus electricity usage. Please, electricity is going to be an issue going forward. So I think ARM has a game to win And the other places have a game to lose.
1: Lee Munson, thank you, sir. Great to see you. We appreciate your time. And we'll hear from those companies pretty soon. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.